Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. When you're ready, sir. I'm ready. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is Will Hershey. He's a partner at Roundhill and they have the super interesting nerd gamer ETF. I'm going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. How you doing, Will? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. What is NERD Nerd? Yeah, so nerd, you gave us a, a great introduction there. Nerd is really the, kind of the first pure play esports and digital entertainment ETF. And when I kind of look at the global landscape of media and entertainment, I view what's going on not only, especially right now during during COVID, but but more broadly, I view kind of gaming and esports as really kind of the future of where the world's heading. It's an exciting secular trend, and we thought that given all the excitement that was going on in the private markets, the public really deserved kind of a vehicle to get diversified exposure to the space. What, what's the difference between gaming and esports? Yep. So gaming and esports are, are certainly tied at the hip, right? Esports is kind of a, an extension of, of gaming. At its core, esports is really this the concept of the second derivative form of entertainment, of of watching other people play games. I know that sounds probably really Got foreign it. to a lot of listeners, um, but this is something that's happening on a, on a global scale. Um, just last year, we were talking about 400 million viewers for esports globally. That's expected to grow to 600 million by 2022. More people watch, okay, watch gaming and esports than Netflix, HBO, ESPN, and Hulu combined. That's um, crazy. And, and, and esports is, is kind of this exciting and fast-growing part of gaming. For I think a lot of investors, particularly in the U.S., don't appreciate the size and scope of the gaming industry. I think part of that is because so many of the companies involved are, are listed elsewhere. You know, the revenues are, are diverse in terms of geography. The U.S. is one or two uh, in terms of market size, in terms of revenue relative to China being kind of maybe number one. But gaming uh, is $150 billion a year market in terms of revenue. That's larger than global box office and music industries combined. It's also growing, you know, call it nine to eleven percent per year. Um, and for us, we look at like what's going on right now in terms of consumption, especially with younger generations. They're gaming. Like you heard it on on the last few Netflix conference calls. Their biggest threat to kind of engagement and time spent is Fortnite. It's not. It's not other um, yeah. film. So how, how do you get there? Are you an ETF guy? Are you a gamer or are you both? Great question. I, so I am an ETF guy. I actually first uh, got introduced to ETFs. I was part of a team that launched two uh, energy focused ETFs back in 2012-13 when energy was like a, a fun place to be. Um, so that's how I got my introduction to ETFs and spent time thereafter building out indexes, helped launch an ETN actually with RBC back in the day. So that, that's kind of my ETF background. And I've always been a casual gamer, I would say. I'm not going pro. I'm not one of these esports guys, but I, I enjoy playing now and again. Yeah, my brother-in-law was a uh, professional gamer for a little while. He played FIFA. 
Do you remember? The, you, I don't know if the league still exists, but it had one of the teams was the Singapore Swords or something like that. It was that league. They still have competitive FIFA. Competitive FIFA is big. Um, a lot of the uh, EPL teams actually have their own esports version that they're kind of putting out on the the virtual pitch, if you will. Um, but FIFA is 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 definitely a popular game, and it brings in a ton of revenues. From an esports standpoint, though, the games that people really want to watch um, typically aren't your sports simulation titles. Now we're in a really unique world right now where people are craving traditional sports, so we're getting broadcasts of FIFA, of Madden on ESPN, which is amazing to see. Actually, the most exciting one is probably the the, the racing simulators, whether it's Formula One or NASCAR, because I think that virtual racing could eventually become the norm, like because you can replicate it so well. But really, the most popular games in esports are kind of things that you couldn't do in real life, whether it's a shooter or kind of a fantasy uh, title. Those are kind of the most popular. So there's the the strategy the strategy games. Um, name's just escaping me at the moment, but I know that's Starcraft. Called. Maybe Starcraft. is one of, the, one of the ones. Yeah. Starcraft is actually where esports kind of got its start um, in, in Korea. Starcraft and then Starcraft Two, and I think that's important to note too. Is this is really a global phenomenon. It started in Korea, was built out through kind of the internet cafe community there. China's now probably the largest market in terms of esports. Then I would say EU. The US is now really just coming into its own in terms of mainstream acceptance. And I think Fortnite um, and kind of the pop phenomenon that that was really, to a certain extent, made gaming, I, w I would go as far as to say, cool. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got, you've got Drake. Uh, playing with Ninja for the biggest Twitch stream of all time. Like gaming became cool over the last couple of years. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely something that's that's global in nature. And when I look at the broader sports landscape, and sometimes I think the parallels to traditional sports are kind of overplayed because this is really a digital medium. It's very different, which is part of the reason why it's able to go on in the current environment. But Esports is really um, global and it's easy to play. And that's the same reason that for me personally, when I look at the traditional sports landscape, I'm bullish on, on soccer, on football, because anyone can, anyone can get together and play it. Basketball, you need a hoop. But, but similarly, I look at some of the other sports and there's, there's warning signs. The NFL's got head injuries. The NHL is very regional. Um, Major League Baseball, the average fan is 60. <laughs> I think why you're seeing so many, that's, a, that's, a, that's pretty much accurate. I think it's 57. The reason why you're seeing so much investment into this space, and a lot of it is coming actually from traditional sports owners who are investing into teams or investing into some of the game publishers, is because they view it as a hedge against their, their you know, traditional sports assets. Yeah. Esports fans are young. They're affluent because they're able to afford games. Um, but longer term, I view kind of like advancements in, in hardware and technology as really being the driving force here. You're now at a point where you can play AAA high-end games on an iPhone 5 or 6. And really what that's done is introduce an entirely new part of the world who can't afford a $2,000 gaming PC or a $500 Xbox to the world of gaming. And that, for me, that's what really gets me excited longer term. So how does nerd invest into this stuff? Are you, is it, does it track an index or is it active? Uh, how do you decide whether you want to add something, size it up? Like how do you actually, how does nerd actually make the investments? Sure. So we're, we're an index-based product. Um, really, when we're looking at a theme like esports or any other 
kind of thematic equity product for that matter, it's not always so straightforward in terms of which companies are, are really getting you that exposure. For us, our job we view as being that of providing as close as we can to giving people beta exposure to this theme. There's no, there's no quote unquote benchmark. We believe we're, we're trying to, to create that benchmark and the way we go about it is I think is pretty unique. So um, the first step really that we're doing is screening public filings for keywords. So 8Ks, presentations, press releases, annual reports for keywords like esports, game streaming, digital entertainment. And that's really defining our universe and then the second step is the way that we're weighting it, which is assigning higher weighting on the basis of, of the company's score. So really, and I think that really gets to this concept of, of assigning, of trying to get to a, a place where you're providing beta. So um, even if a company is much lower in the market cap scale, if we've defined it as under our methodology as a pure play esports company, it's going to get a higher weight than I'll use an example of a 10 cent which is has one of the most impressive games and esports portfolios in the world. It's a $400 billion company with probably 40% or so coming from gaming. We don't necessarily believe that putting that as your largest weight really gets you to what we're trying to do. Um, first and foremost, our goal is to provide people with the vehicle for, for them to then go ahead and, and express their view however they see fit, not to try and um, pick winners and losers. So how, how do you weight something like Tencent? Is it, is it as simple as it's 400 billion and it's 40%, so therefore it's 40% of 400 billion is the kind of... I, I wish it was that clear cut, but unfortunately you, you, the line items don't always make it so easy to, to determine. We're really based on our scoring, grouping into three buckets, pure plays, cores, and non-cores, uh, and we're assigning one and a half times the weight for each respective category. So pure plays are getting one and a half times cores, one and a half times non-cores. Tencent falls into our core uh, bucket, um, and that's kind of how it plays out. And it's interesting because I think probably a lot of uh, people listening are, are only tangentially familiar with the space and probably the names that come to the top of their mind are the U.S. listed companies, Activision Blizzard, Take-Two, EA are really the big three. Um, and it's interesting the way our methodology shakes out, and I think this is relatively accurate, Activision Blizzard, uh, which has the Call of Duty League, the Overwatch League, um, Star they, they're the company behind StarCraft, Hearthstone, a lot of these competitive games that are being played and, and then watched, they get a higher weighting than does uh, Electronic Arts, for example. So for the individual companies, is it, because they're all on sort of these release schedules, I guess it takes a, it takes a long time for a, a game to come to the market. So are they a little bit kind of boom bust? How, how does it how does it work from their perspective? And you you sort of try to balance it out, saying there is all of this money being spent pretty consistently across all of yeah. this, and so we're going to try to capture that. No, it's a great question. So I think historically it used to be very hit driven, similar to Hollywood. Um, and and when I was growing up, the way it would work was you'd go to the store, you'd buy your cartridge. I'm going back to my very young days. Uh, Super Nintendo. That, I think that was my first system. Um, and you'd play the game out, and that was it. And the revenues were simply what you paid up front at the, at the store um, or passed through from the, the store, you know, physical hardware, brick-and-mortar store. Now the games industry has made a tremendous shift towards, I don't know if I love this term, but in the industry it's called games as a service. Um, <laughs> and, and really what's going on there is some of the most popular games are actually free to play. You don't have to pay anything to play them. 
And most of the monetization is happening inside of the game. So Fortnite, for example, which was the highest grossing game by several metrics over the past couple of years, you can you can play that game for, for years of your life and that never have, having spent a dime. Um, the monetization is now taking place whether people are buying outfits for their characters or new dance moves or a new gun. Um, and it's Does it make you, virtual... can you be comp can you, can you be competitive without any of that stuff? Yes. No. The the games companies are very cognizant of not making it what they would call kind of play to, play to win. Or excuse me, pay to pay win. To win, right? Um, they don't want to ruin the kind of competitive integrity. But um, yeah. So so some companies are still what I would consider more hit driven. Um, I look at CD Projekt, which is a Polish company. Everyone's looking to their upcoming release of Cyberpunk 2077. Uh, Take Two, which is known for Grand Theft Auto, they're going to see spikes in their revenue when they're releasing a new GTA or a new Red Dead Redemption. That's just par for the course. But now what they're able to do for a title like GTA is continually monetize by adding and uploading new patches and new content over time, uh, kind of via downloadable content. Um, and really it makes this IP uh, evergreen. Like like the, the most popular games right now, some of them have been around for 20 years. Um, the longevity has really increased with, and it's really driven by technology, right? You simply couldn't have gotten me any more content with my cartridge in my basement. You couldn't have delivered it, <laughs> but now it's all done on a continuous basis. What does that mean for something like GameStop? Is it just, that's just game over for GameStop? Oh yeah. Like I, I think I've been rather adamant on, th on this, like, you don't need to overlook GameStop. I know you have a lot of value listeners who probably go to town on me for this, but like, it it really does resemble Blockbuster. I know that analogy is probably overused, but the trends in the industry are digital. I, I think if you if you go across the board, whether it's EA, Ubisoft, Activision, they're moving from over the past few years from call it fifty percent digital to seventy, eighty percent. I think now with what we're happen what's happening in the world with coronavirus. It's all like it's almost all going to be digital. So, um, nerd is the first thing that Roundhill did. What's the what's? Tell me a little bit about Roundhill. I know it's you and uh, you and Tim Maloney, uh, Maloney Sandwich on Twitter, <laughs> which I can't believe that handle was still available when he <laughs> when he got there to grab it. But it's, what's 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 the story with Roundhill? Yeah, so I think it it really comes back to my initial experience with ETFs. Um, helping launch those two products, helping design the index, helping manage them. Really during my time uh, back with those two products, I got to appreciate the ETF structure, which I think we would probably both agree is the superior structure in, in the market right now. I think we'll eventually get the tokenized uh, offerings, but we're a little, we'll, we're a little ways away there. Um, and, and beyond that, really got to appreciate the business model. ETFs, for those who are unfamiliar, is a very scalable uh, business model if you can get it done right. And got together with Tim at the time. At the time when we did this, which was kind of late 2018, um, I was wrapping up as the head trader for a long short energy fund. Thank God I am not doing that right now. I would have zero hair, um, even with growing it out during this. I would have zero hair. Um, and said, you know, I think there's something really interesting. Even though there's thousands of ETFs, I think there's two things that can really be done. One, I still think there's room to differentiate from a strategy standpoint and do things right. And two, I think, you know, I think what's sometimes not being done by these larger issuers who throw out all these products is really becoming experts in your underlying product, supplementing that with content and marketing. And that was kind of the foundation for Round Hill. And, and we, we launched, as you mentioned, the eSports ETF last June, working on a few other things, 
um, including one ETF that's publicly filed. So people can check that out. I'm not, I can't say any more than that, but yeah. Um, so how did, how did you and Tim know each other? Tim and I actually know each other from way back when we grew up, um, we grew up together. We went to Vanderbilt undergrad together, um, stayed in touch, even though he's on the West coast now in San Francisco, I'm in New York. Um, remote work is, is no problem for us. Um, so we've known each other since we were, since we were little kids, grew up in Manhattan, actually. What's the gaming hub for the States? Do you think is it San Fran? I think it's probably, uh, Los Angeles. Um, if you had to kind of peg it, um, Santa Monica, that area, um, a lot of the game studios are there, but I think like, it's not really as much about where you are anymore. I think it's, it's really, like I said, it's become a global phenomenon. There's no kind of one place. Uh, where where people are making great games. So what's the plans for Roundhill? How do you how do you kind of grow that out? Yeah, I think like I said, it's it's this focus on continuing to get out there um, and, and tell the story and educate because we are putting out index based products. Really, it's it it's our job to let people know that they exist um, and not to kind of overthink it from 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 that standpoint. Um, that's kind of our, our our strategy in terms of growing the business, but. Hopefully, we'll be going from one to several ETFs over the next month that we're involved with, uh, working on something really interesting on the private side as well. But yeah, no, it's, it, it's, we're fortunate to be working on interesting things in these times. Are you able to say anything about the private stuff or private? I, I, I can't share it. I wish I, wish I could because it's really pretty cool. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about the companies that end up in the ETF. Sure. So when we look at the ETF and the, the broader universe, really falls into into four main categories. The first one is probably pretty obvious to most people, but these are the game developers or the game publishers. Um, so unlike traditional sports, where you and I could get a few friends and start a pickup basketball league tomorrow, games companies own the underlying IP that's being watched on Twitch or paid, played competitively in an arena in, nor, in a normal environment. Like we can't start the Overwatch League without buy-in from Activision Blizzard. And in that sense, because they're the IP owners, they can really control the way that their game IP is then used. So they're very much so in a position of, of power. And, and Matt Ball, uh, who's big on Twitter, actually wrote a great piece uh, kind of outlining the overall esports landscape, highlighted this. There's so much power that lies in the hands of the game publishers, and for that reason, they represent roughly 40% of our portfolio. Uh, the next group is what we would consider media companies. So this, this includes uh, game streaming platforms, as well as companies that are uh, involved in operating esports leagues and tournaments, as well as live events. Teams would also fall into that category. So we saw our first esports team uh, come public uh, in Denmark just last year. Uh, Astralis Group, which is is a really a pure play uh, esports team, which is fascinating to see how they they trade. What do they play? Uh, they would fall in. So they play Counter Strike is their big one. They have uh, a franchise slot in League of Legends, which is probably their most valuable asset. So a lot of these leagues are doing franchising where you're paying up ten, twenty million dollars just to be able to play um, in that game competitively. And the last one's FIFA. So they have kind of three teams um, that they're they, working how with. How do they monetize that? Great question. So monetization, they're doing revenue sharing with the leagues that they're participating in. So similar to what we're seeing in traditional, although 
we're at the point now where they're just some of these leagues are just starting to actually pay out distributions on those on those revenue shares. Um, they're also um, getting a lot of revenues from advertising and sponsorship dollars. So get a get a spot um, on the team's jersey or be a lot of it's endemic sponsors. So be the headset sponsor or mouse sponsor for an esports team. That's great publicity for an endemic gaming brand or, or PC brand. Um, then they're also selling merch. But but it's interesting you bring this up because we're seeing two very distinct um, models that are being kind of employed by esports teams. On the one hand, you have uh, what kind of FaZe and 100 Thieves are doing, which is saying, look, we are content creators. We are a media company first. Our whole thing is about getting people to watch us on Twitch, on YouTube, and then monetizing that. Let's just be let's just be uh, providing people entertainment. We're not even necessarily the best team, best team or best players in a certain game, but we're just providing content, uh, and they're monetizing that primarily via via merchandise and sponsorships. Then you have other teams who are really trying to look like traditional sports. They're buying these franchise slots, uh, whether it's into the Overwatch League or League of Legends. Um, what, what does that mean to buy? Of, what does it mean to buy a franchise spot? Well, there's only a finite number of people who can play in the actual league. And exactly. So, and so, so you have the, to own it to play. Exactly. So the last American traditional sports team to franchise, I think, if I'm getting this right, was the Houston Texans when they bought into that slot in the NFL. The same thing is going on here um, where you actually have to pay money up front to be guaranteed a, a slot in the league. Um, and that's going to entitle you in perpetuity to take place in the, the revenue share and the monetization. Um, but we're, it's interesting that we're able to see these savvy investors, once again, many of whom, you know, Bob Kraft owns a team in the Overwatch League, uh, the owner of the Patriots. Jeff Wilpon, the owner of the Mets, has a team. Um, the, these guys are all reportedly paying, call it 30 to 60 million in some cases, up front for a slot in these leagues. Like, it's incredible. Um, and while we're on this topic of how these leagues are making money, the media rights are starting to become massive. Um, so we just saw Activision Blizzard sign a three-year deal with uh, YouTube for exclusive rights. Uh, YouTube got for Activision's games to broadcast those esports. Um, I think it was three years, uh, I want to say 130. Um, and then we also saw, and this is the most amazing stat to me, and it kind of speaks to the Chinese market, Billy Billy, which is a portfolio holding, um, paid three years, 113 million, for the exclusive rights just to one tournament, the League of Legends World Championship, and just in China. That's the only rights they got exclusively, and we're talking about, you know, and hundreds, how, hundred plus million. They're monetizing that by that they're selling advertising against that. Yep. So the the and and we're coming back to kind of these companies that fall under our media bucket. A few of them. Um, our, our Billy Billy, uh, which is this uh, Chinese game streaming platform, and then there are two competitors there, Huya and Douyu. We don't have Amazon, which owns Twitch, because once again, coming back to our earlier conversation, we're trying to provide that beta exposure. Um, but these ga game platforms are monetizing via, in certain cases, subscriptions. Um, advertising, as you mentioned, is a big one. But in China, it's very different. Uh, there's kind of this entire virtual economy built around what they call virtual gifting where um, people are donating to their uh, favorite streamer, and this happens in the US as well, uh, where they're donating to their favorite streamer to get 10 seconds of fame where they read their, their username off during the stream. 
Um, and, and I know this sound, so much of this probably sounds so foreign to people, but I think the analogy is like getting a selfie with LeBron after the sure. game. Yeah. So, okay. So, so those are the media plays and we can, we can touch more on that if you have questions and then you have hardware. Um, so a lot of these gaming hardware brands, whether they make uh, gaming headset, gaming mice, gaming keyboards, people are investing into their gaming equipment the same way golfers are investing into their, their golf clubs. Uh, in many cases, these companies are providing the equipment to the professional teams as well as streamers. Um, and, and, and as I mentioned, act as endemic sponsors. And then kind of the last grouping is what we would consider broad-based. Um, once again, we're not investing in Microsoft for Xbox or, or Sony for PlayStation. It's a very small portion of their business. For us, broad-based companies include things like Tencent, um, like C Limited, which is a fascinating company uh, to look at as well. What's, what's the story with C Limited? C is a Southeast Asian focused company out of Singapore. Um, they're really building out, in addition to their games platform, they're building out um, e-commerce and, and fintech platform uh, focused on that part of the world. But to me, the most important part about C is they developed, uh, a, self-developed a game called Garena Free Fire. Don't worry if you've never heard it because no one in the games industry has ever heard of it either. That went absolutely viral um, in in Latin America and in Southeast Asia. And coming back to our earlier comment, they built this game to run on low-end smartphones. But it's a it's a battle royale format, so similar to Fortnite, but can run on a potato. <laughs> and as a result, <laughs> as a result, it's really taken off in emerging markets. Um, I think they reported over a billion dollars in EBITDA for their digital entertainment segment last year, most of which is coming from this one game. Um, I think I think when they last reported it, uh, it had 250 million registered users, uh, which is more which is like incredible. Um, and all of this, once again, taking place via in-game monetization, it's free to play. You could download it and play it for free and never pay a dime. So how does it, how does it, well, what's a battle royale format first, and and then how does that how do you play it on a on a on a phone versus playing it on a, a bigger screen? Well, because people are way more talented than I am is how they play it. But um, Battle Royale is this uh, kind of newer genre of games that, once again, driven by technology, was able to kind of become feasible. But where you have, um, call it 50, 60, 100 people all participate on a single map and everyone is fighting against one another. Um, and Fortnite was probably the best in terms of popular, popularizing that what, genre. Why do, you, why do you keep on talking about Fortnite in the past tense? Is that that's over? No, it's not over at all. It's not over at all. It's just, it was, I feel like it's, it's got more and more competition now. Um, just, in, just in that, in that particular space. No, Fortnite is, is definitely stronger than ever. Um, they actually just yesterday, I think it was yesterday, announced a new mode for that game where, and this is another kind of part of the long-term thesis. They announced a mode where you're not actually fighting one another. It's a, it's a place to hang out. And this speaks to kind of this concept of a metaverse, of a, of a digital third place. Uh, Fortnite's really become my, you know, what for me was AOL Instant Messenger. That was where I would hang with my friends. Once again, dating myself. Uh, for, for, for kids now, they're going on Fortnite to hang out. Um, and I think that can't be understated when you're kind of looking at this longer term. And all these trends are being accelerated by the world we live in at the current moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember there was a thing called Second Life. I think it was Second Life. Do yeah. you remember that? It yeah. wasn't really, I don't think it was really, 
a game so much it was just a place to hang out. It's been funny. No. It's kind of been something like that has been slowly kind of developing, right? And is Fortnite kind of the, they just needed, just needed something to kind of tip it over and maybe Fortnite has done it. I think that's what they're going for. Um, I remember Second Life when it came out, I thought it was fascinating. There was a virtual economy. It had a lot of look and feel like a, a metaverse. Um, it's interesting that Fortnite started as a game and is now evolving to be more than that. Um, but yeah, I think Fortnite's at the forefront there. Roblox is another kind of um, kind of open world type uh, open world type platform. Minecraft. I don't know if if your kids have ever played Minecraft or watched yeah. Minecraft, but yeah, I've, I've but tried. That's to. <laughs> so it's like I th they just needed that killer app to kind of get it over yeah. the line from you know not really attracting most people. To, maybe it's tipped a little bit just by virtue of the fact that it's got this, the game is the killer app to, to tip you into the metaverse. I think so. And I think that in, in ways that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you, you need to get critical mass and scale in terms of a user base to, to really make this, make that concept of a digital world work. I, I think that the killer app is what brought people in. And now if they can convert them from game users um, to, to kind of just platform users, uh, it'll be fascinating. Uh, one thing that was mentioned recently, though, is that the instances of the game are meant to run only for 100 people at a time. Um, is the technology there to have a single instance where universally people can all come uh, come and kind of interact? I don't know where that is, um, but that's like, that's the holy grail, ready player one, uh, yeah. you know, what year is it type, type deal. Yeah, I think quarantine has been an interesting, I've had, you know, I've been doing, I have a Skype beer with friends of mine and that's been good because I have friends in Australia and around the US and they've, a few of them have said, uh, this is fun, but we should be doing it in a game where we can do something else at the same time. And so you got to go and get like whatever is, you got to go and get an Xbox or whatever to join in. It's fun. Someone is, you're drinking at the same time someone from Australia is? Someone there is the degenerate. I don't know who. I won't call anyone out. Saturday, but. 1 p.m. Australian oh. time is, is Friday night, 8 p.m. Uh, Los Angeles time. That's that's how it works. <laughs> oh, you got to figure it out. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm ahead, I, so it's never going to be me. <laughs> I, I was thinking it, it wouldn't have worked out, but that makes sense. Um, no, but I mean, you mentioned what's going on right now. Like, we've never seen higher engagement with games. Steam, which is a popular PC gaming platform, is hitting a new record almost every week. Twitch, all-time new record for viewers in, in March, and I would expect again in April. Um, Verizon reported uh, they peaked 200% um, above uh, where they were pre-COVID in terms of gaming network usage. Like So many people are turning to games as that kind of escape um, in these times. And anecdotally, uh, you know, I'm I'm 31. A lot of my friends don't have time for games, but they're asking me now, like, wh what should I buy? What should I do? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you too. What should I buy? What should I do? <laughs> well, if you if you if you don't want to buy any new equipment, there's tons of games you can play on on Steam on your PC. Um, but I think you and and we also have new consoles that are coming out in the holidays this year. So I don't know if it makes sense to go out and buy an Xbox. Well, that's good advice. So maybe maybe you wait. Uh, Maybe you wait until the end of the year and, and then invest. So what's the what's the smart way to do it? Well, I mean, do, do you do you have a console in mind? 
I'm an Xbox guy. This is like a, a very much a, a hot topic. I'm an Xbox guy. You can go. You can't go wrong if you do PlayStation, Nintendo Switch, which has been selling really well, and and that's their current gen. There's no, nothing on the horizon there. That's definitely a, a kind of more casual platform that's that's can be handheld as well. That could be a good one to kind of get started on. It's kind of like adopting a religion, right? You've got to you got to make sure you because I've seen. I'm aware that there are memes about whether you're a pc guy or a, or a, a, what's that what, what if it's not what is it if it's not a pc console a console yeah a, yeah pc master race right yes that's it's definitely true i mean just think about how many more buttons you have if right. you're using a whole keyboard right it's hard to compete with that i've never been a pc gamer though i'm not good enough to, to even think about doing that it's easier with the uh with the uh, with the controller for me it is anyway maybe some people are, are better i think i started out it was like a sega and i'm not even like it wasn't even the, the high-end sega it was the newish sega it was the old like the original sega 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 oh, i'm sorry that's my, that's my accent again it came out there no uh sega was a great console they're not really doing that much anymore but no the sega genesis i remember that well from growing up it was that and nintendo right those are the two and so what is it now? Xbox, Sony, PlayStation, and still Nintendo? Yeah, so you have uh, Microsoft, Xbox, uh, Sony, PlayStation, and then Nintendo. They're kind of the three players from a console standpoint. But it's interesting where we are right now because, once again, coming back to technology, we're on the precipice of moving from having physical hardware required to run games to the cloud being able to drive it. So there's a lot of talk right now around cloud gaming, um, Google has a, a play in the space, same with NVIDIA, um, and, and the expectation that the tech is almost there, the expectation is that 5G is really going to allow for you to, to stream games the same way you would stream video or audio, um, which is a, a lot more Herculean task, just given how much data is being processed. And on top of that, losing, uh, you know, losing a second while you're watching a Netflix movie, who cares? Losing a second while you're playing a game, you're dead. Right. Um, so the tech is really important, uh, which is why 5G is kind of playing into this, this as well. So consoles, it's kind of a lot of people think this is the last, this is going to be the last iterations of consoles as we know it come this this holiday. Add that to your bear cases for for GME. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then VR. I mean, VR seems to me like that's just if you get to VR, that the whoever has the VR console or the VR platform that becomes the um, the standard, like you, you just watch TV through your VR headset, right? You'll be able to sit in your gigantic virtual um, house, watch your gigantic virtual TV and play real games that don't feel like games because you're already plugged into the VR. But uh, when I when VR first came out, it was really, really clunky. And I don't know where it's got to now, but I think it looks pretty good. It's still like, still it's clunky. still not quite there it's not ready player one yet not quite yet no there's definitely certain applications that are, are doing pretty cool things um valve which is one of the the top game publishers in the world put out uh, a version of half-life that's in vr and if you watch the videos on that like it looks incredible i haven't had a chance to try it um but no i think everyone there's always been this expectation of vr becoming massive i think that will still eventually happen i mean just a like it doesn't 
you don't need to be an expert in the space to understand like what that could potentially unlock if it's figured out. It's just a, it's just the technology is much more difficult than I think the expectations were we'd be all in VR by 2020. It's like here we are, and it's very small in terms of adoption. Um, but for me, coming back to esports, I get really excited when I think about VR applications. Um, when you think about what if I want to watch, and let's use a sport example because it's better. I want to watch a, a FIFA match, competitive FIFA match in VR um, where I'm not seen by the other players, but I can actually go around and run on the pitch while they're playing. Like stuff like that that you could never replicate in traditional sports gets me like really excited for, for what that could be. Yeah, that's interesting. That would be fun. I just wonder, so I know that Facebook's got a VR option. I don't know how good, do you, do, who's kind of leading the charge in, in, in VR? Facebook is definitely um, up there. So they bought Oculus. I don't want to quote the purchase price a, a few years back, but they bought Oculus to really get, go into the VR space. They're definitely, um, they're definitely a big player. Valve, as I mentioned, the game that created that software also has a hardware option. Uh, those are probably the two the two most notable players, but Facebook definitely is uh, has a place there and definitely at a, a reasonable price point. What, what's the challenge? Is it is it the hardware? Or is it the software? I like Both. I don't know how you get around this, but for me, wh whenever I've had the opportunity to play with one, it's like after too long, if like whether you feel nauseous or it's just like it, it it's not it's not immersive real enough. enough. Yeah, I yeah I don't know if there's a technical term there, but like. I'm sure we will eventually get there. With robots, it was like the uncanny valley. You, you, you heard that term for robots? That, that's from Westworld, isn't it? Well, there's yeah, the idea is that like, if something is far enough away from being human, then you, 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 you'll think it's cute and you'll like it. Mm. But the, and if it's human, you'll like it as well. But there's this point in between where it's like transitioning to becoming, like moving between being something that's obviously not human to human. They call that the uncanny valley. There's something you get really weirded out when you're like, there's something wrong with this mm -mm. human they're not quite human i just wonder if that's the same thing where you kind of like this is almost real but it's not quite there no that's fascinating i, I think that's probably the perfect way of describing a lot of these these vr applications where it's it's exactly what you said right like you know in the back of in part of your brain knows that it's not real but it, it like other parts are telling you like yeah this is it I just wonder if, uh, how, I mean, how hard is it to port some of those like games like GTA or like you're already sort of in, immersed and you can look around and you can move pretty freely and they've created like the world is sort of seamless, right? How hard can that be no. to move across? So I'm not, I'm not an expert on the technology, but I guess if you imagine GTA, for example, is played in the third person. So what yeah. you'd need to do is code in the ability to then not only be first person, but to be first person with kind of 360 um, viewability at one point, or I, I don't, I don't want to go over my skis here, but I think it's getting more and more doable. I know there's companies that are trying to do exactly what you said, which is work on applying VR adaptations to existing game code. Um, because you're absolutely right. Like they are, they are immersive already. Um, GTA being a fascinating one. I have seen a YouTube example of somebody getting into one of the cars in a, in a VR type scenario, just so you could see the detail inside the car. It wasn't quite, the detail inside the car wasn't quite there. It was kind of interesting to look at. But that can be figured out, right? That just yeah. means more time. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know how I don't know how we get to I, I don't think we want to get to the place where we're all wearing VR headsets. That sounds a little like weird to me. It seems kind of um, unavoidable to me. Probably that too. Um but that's going to be a generational thing when that comes and I don't know if I'm ready. What about stuff like uh augmented reality? So that uh you know in the the Pokemon Poke the, the new Pokemon that Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go and you walk around the streets, particularly in Los Angeles, there were people everywhere chasing Pokemon in like the malls and places like that. That was I mean, that was an incredible hit. I mean, look at what it did back in I wanna say twenty fifteen like or that, sixteen yeah. to Nintendo stock price, um, given their exposure. Um, Niantic is the company behind that, private company. Um, that was one example of of AR really taking off in a gaming format. I don't think I, they tried a Harry Potter game using a similar format to Pokemon Go. Didn't do nearly as well. Um, so as of right now, that seems like kind of a one-off. But I mean, in theory, it's a cool format to kind of play with, right? You've got half real and, and, and layering on top of that an element of fantasy. I think there's a lot of fun stuff that can be done with that. Probably outside of gaming too. It ended as fast as it seemed. There was just people were everywhere doing it and then just stopped all of a sudden too. You think that, but Pokemon Go Still is generating as much revenue. No way. Almost as much revenue. I think actually, if I read correctly, that like February or March was its best month ever. And I said, well, how are they doing that? Pokemon Go became Pokemon Stay at home. Uh, <laughs> but I guess they adapted the game. And this, once again, speaks to this concept of games as a service, being able to adapt. Uh, unlike you can in other mediums, they were able to change the the way the game worked where you could you could stay in a certain place and, and, and play it. But no, Pokemon Go is an incredible study um, of kind of longevity and it's still generating tons of revenues, even though it's not the same uh, pop culture, once again, phenomenon that we saw back then. And I think it brings up an interesting point indirectly, which is uh, a lot of these games, particularly mobile games, are driven by, um, driven by what we kind of call whale users, where you have these users who are spending on these free-to-play games thousands and thousands of dollars um, when the average user taking that into account spends something like five to ten per year. Right. Um, so that's kind of, I think there, you probably have a lot of whales still playing Pokemon Go would be my guess. It's kind of an interesting, um, I, I, all of the, the, every single cafe and restaurant that you sort of walked past, particularly, in, I'm thinking Santa Monica, um, a little mall there every single cafe had these signs outside saying we have a special pokemon available in here and i thought that's so clever to get people to come into your store it's brilliant like i can see how this thing will work i can see how augmented reality will work for monetization yeah no and and i think they're they're also doing some interesting things outside gaming but in in advertising with vr um i just saw the other day that a chinese uh company alongside one side of the building put up a massive qr code on the building and when you put your phone over it of like a, vir a virtual ad was played on your phone like we're getting to like we're getting to a tipping point with a lot of really cool things driven by technology gaming happens to be the iteration i think that's most easily accessible for people yeah. to kind of interact with that tech um but it's going to go way beyond gaming right like gaming is it is the kind of uh, tip of the iceberg when it comes to where the technology is heading. Well, where does it go? What, what's the obvious uh, early stuff? Well, I mean, we, t we talked about it, right? It's like, it's, it's this shift from physical world to digital, the metaverse being kind of the end long-term scary 
um, you know, thing out there in the, in the horizon. But I think in the interim, we're like, it's just, it's, it's a gradual shift from, I mean, look at where we are in the world we're right all now. We're going to be sheltering at home using virtual reality, augmented reality to, to get outside. Oh God, I hope not. I hope, I hope it's, <laughs> we all hope that this goes back to normal as soon as possible and that it's driven not by necessity, but by kind of what people want to engage with. But yeah, that's cool. Um, mate, anything else that I can, that I should ask you before we roll on? No, I think this is great. All right. Uh, that's, uh, Super interesting stuff. Well, uh, folks want to get in contact with you uh, or follow along with what you're doing. How do they go about doing that? Yep, probably best way is uh, follow us on Round uh, on Twitter. Excuse me. Uh, we're just at Roundhill. Pretty simple. If you want to follow me, don't know why you would. Uh, you can follow me at Maybe Bullish, uh, which is very apropos for my view of the market at the current. <laughs> you bullish. <laughs> Maybe, maybe I don't know maybe. anymore. That's the truth. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Uh, Will Hershey, Roundhill, and the Nerd N E R D ETF. Thank you very much. Thanks, Toby. <laughs>